I Read Comics, show number 41. If you only go ice skating once a year and you're ice skating and it's that once a year and the ice is really rough, you probably shouldn't try to take a sharp turn at high speeds. Especially not when you're ice skating in jeans and a t-shirt. It's really not a good idea. Trust me on this. So here we are with a whole bunch of stuff to talk about and uh, I was just thinking I'm, I'm a little afraid I'm going senile or something because there's so many things that I wanted to mention and I keep forgetting them all. So let's see how many I can remember and how many things I'll forget and then after I finish recording this I'll go, oh fuck, I forgot. So the first thing I wanted to mention is that the Women Podcasting Comics Grant thing has happened and it was given to um, Jenny Moody at the Phantom Power Comics Podcast. Yay! One more woman doing a podcast and hooray for Jenny who has a great little podcast. I will put in the link to it. You should listen to it and I'm so glad that we had um, this great applicant and that she got it. So um, I'll be reporting more on that as it happens but I'm very happy that that happened. Um, I wanted to mention that I had talked in a previous podcast about trying to get some demographics for comic readers or comic buyers and I'm a little frustrated and I can't make much progress here so I did hear from a couple people who said that they had some numbers and that we might be surprised by those numbers and I'm I'm trying to get more concrete data about that before I launch into it and you know the, the whole reason like I said before is that we're constantly being told that women don't read comics not that they there aren't a lot of them, just that women don't read comics and that they don't buy comics. And I think that's crap, but I really want to see what the numbers are um, to see what the comic book industry actually knows or thinks they know about the percentage of women who buy and read comics. I wrote to both DC and Marvel, and from Marvel I heard nothing. And from DC I wrote to their uh, like P- PR firm, I guess, and I got a stupid answer back that says, we don't have those numbers. And I wrote back saying, oh, you're kidding. Somebody must have them. And of course, they never wrote back. So I need to pursue that a little more thoroughly. If anybody out there that listens knows where we could get some of those numbers, that would be awesome. I know that certain demographic data is available for a price from companies that do market research, um, but it's often fairly expensive, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to get that kind of data, and I don't have that, and I don't think they're going to share it with me for free. I did a lot of Googling, and it looks like there were some studies that were done back in the 90s, but since then, I I can't find any publicly available data about this, and, you know, I understand all of the um, flaws that are inherent in market research because I've seen a lot of market research and I've participated in market research and you know when they say that 20% of a certain number of readers are male or female what they haven't talked to 20,000 people you know they've talked to some sampling and then extrapolated from there and sometimes that's accurate and sometimes it's not and I mean if you watch the news you know how accurate polls are especially when it comes to politics they're not But I would just like to know what kind of hard data is out there because I think we need data to know who the readership really is. And as I was thinking about this the other day, one of the the things that I haven't seen pointed out 
um, in this whole women don't read comics thing is that, of course, there are women who read comics, and it's probably a larger percentage than the comics industry is prepared to admit. And it's not that, you know, nobody's saying that things need to be banned in comics. We just want it changed a little bit because, like, I think the other women, women who have been reading comics for a long time, we read it in spite of the shit. We read it in spite of the sexism and in spite of the misogyny and, you know, the the utter um, inexperience that writers portray or admit to unthinkingly when they try to write relationship stories and it's really clear that they don't know anything about relationships or, or women in general. You know, we read comics in spite of that because there are so many good things about comics that we love. The stories are compelling and the art is wonderful. So in spite of the crap, we continue to read them. And why can't we just reduce the amount of crap a little bit? And as I've said before, and so many other women who have commented on comics before, if reducing the crap by 10% means that you're going to lose 1% of your male audience, but gain 20% of your female audience, I don't know. There are some numbers involved there. And I, I think it's really ridiculous to think that you're going to lose a huge portion of your male readership just because you cut down on the shit a little bit. So anyway, yeah, the in spite of thing. We read comics in spite of the crap. It's not that we ignore it. It's not that we um, don't see it or accept it or uh, agree with it. It's that we just put up with it. Like you put up with all the blatant sexism and misogyny that exists in your everyday life if you're a woman, the way you put up with all the racism if you're ha- you happen to not be a white person. You know, it's there. You just have to deal with it. So anyway, um, so that that's why I want to get the numbers, because I just want to know these things. Um, okay, let's talk about something else now. I want to talk about Dr. DeBunko. This was a comic that I had mentioned previously because it's by Chris Wisnia who did the Doris Danger books and uh, Tabloya and I finally got Dr. DeBunko so this was a collection of stories published in November of this year 2006 and it's the first issue yay which I hope means there's going to be a lot more and this is one of those times when my interests cross over skepticism in comic books and I really really enjoyed this so I highly recommend Dr. DeBunko Um, what Chris has done is taken this character that he created (laughs) which I love the name Dr. DeBunko it's so funny um, and he's made up these little stories where Dr. DeBunko um, talks to people about urban myths or um, other beliefs that are, are just, you know, sort of crazy. And what I like about it is that he kind of starts out with the situation that you usually see when an urban myth is being reported. And then as as things go on, it gets nuttier and nuttier. And you see um, how implausible these things really are. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, this one is called Dr. DeBunko in When Human Flesh Bursts Into Flames. And then there's a little, this is a great illustration of somebody lying in bed on fire. These huge flames shooting off of them. And the caption says, Aye! Um, so the first panel starts, Thank you for coming to examine this shocking case of spontaneous combustion, Dr. DeBunko. He says, it's a tragedy to hear of Mrs. Numfelt's sudden and bizarre passing. Tell me the details, Mr. Numfelt. And then it goes into it. So this is often what you see, right? When you see a report like spooky supernatural things, spontaneous combustion. Oh, my God, how could it have happened when all that was left was their feet? And when you're just presented with it on the face of it like that, you go, oh, that could never have happened any other way. It had to be spontaneous combustion. But then you start finding out more and more, and then you realize what actually happened, which is been proved scientifically so 
you know, Dr. DeBunko is questioning the people involved, um, but they totally disregard all the common sense things that he points out. Like the husband says, oh, she was always smoking on the couch or in bed. I was over watching TV once and I looked over and she had fallen asleep with a cigarette still burning in her finger. And she had an oxygen generator right in the room with her. And then he, Dr. DeBunko says, uh, I'm starting to get a picture of this case of spontaneous combustion. What was she doing before she went to bed? And the husband, who's smoking, by the way, says, well, she was helping me try and fix a gasoline leak under the car. I accidentally spilled gas all over her flammable polyester jumpsuit. I reminded her to change into something before she got into bed, but she loved that jumpsuit. And then uh, the police say, so what should we do? Are we all in danger of spontaneously combusting in our sleep? And Dr. DeBunko says, well, let's just say yes, you're all potentially in mortally grave danger, or you threaten to put everyone around you in mortally grave danger. Every day you're alive. Mrs. Numfeld's shocking case proves that fire is imminently dangerous to this particular community. I want everyone to promise that they will do everything in their power to avoid flames, flammables, and fire. <laughs> so he always ends up realizing that he kind of can't talk sense into these people, just says something like that to calm them down so that let me just read you the titles because they're so funny first one is dr debunko in attack of the corpse eating werewolves um the next story is fear of the sexed crazed succubi the next one is uh the master of debunkery dr debunko can help when devils waltz at midnight um and then there's um and if, this one is, is named like a real comic book. And if the corpse shall bleed. Next one is no brick board nor bars shall stop in the incubus's attack of lust. Let's see. Um, next one is Dr. DeBunko braves the Himalayas to hunt the elusive Yeti. Uh, next one's called my wife is a werewolf. And there's the spontaneous combustion one. And this one's called, um, Who Killed My Cow and Stole Her Eyeballs, Tongue, and Sex Organs? <laughs> and the last one is called, The Devil is My Lover and Father of My Satanic Illicit Love Children. <laughs> so, see, those titles, how can you not buy it when you just hear those titles? They're so fucking funny. So, I love Dr. DeBunko, and I can't wait till he comes out with more of them. Um, and plus, um, because Chris is, has this attention to detail, like all epi- um, issues of Tabloia and the Doris Danger ones, it's filled with fake letters and um, a fake editorial up in the front. And every sentence that is coming from um, the editor-in-chief ends with an exclamation point. Every single sentence. It's great. It's really funny. So, yeah, get some Dr. DeBunko. You will enjoy it. Now, what else do I have? I have some stuff that, so that, that pleased me, you know, and I have some stuff that didn't please me quite so much. Let me talk about the first one. Um, this is a trade paperback from the big old pile of David Arroyo stuff, and it's called Breakfast Afternoon. It's a trade paperback, and it's by Andy Watson, A-N-D-I, who's English. And um, this was published in... Oh, it was published sometime recently. Um, it's from Oni Press, and it's a really nice little book, and I really, really like the art. Um, it was published pretty recently. I'm sorry, there's actually... Where's the date? Oh, July 2001. Um, the art is really simple. I wouldn't say it's stark, but it's economical, and um, it, it's somewhat cartoony, but it, it reminds me a lot of... Um, the art that you saw kind of in the 50s, like sort of jazz inspired, the people are slightly stylized looking. And there's a really, it's all black and white, and there's a nice use of shading as well. Um, 
And because it's set in England, there's a little glossary in the back for people who aren't that familiar with Brit speak. And I had to look some of the stuff up in here. It's a relationship story about um, two people who live in England in sort of a small town. And uh, it's it starts with them uh, about to get married. Well, not about to get married. They're kind of plan- planning to get married. And... Uh, they're Rob and Lou, and they work in a pottery factory. I guess it's a factory where they make pottery. And at the beginning of the story, they both get laid off from their jobs. And um, it's the story of what happens to them after they get laid off from their jobs and um, how they both react differently to that situation and how it affects their relationship, which is basically that it destroys their relationship. And then there's sort of a reconciliation at the end, but I was kind of unclear about how it ended. So, um, the things that I liked, I really liked the, the woman in the story, Lou, because she seems very real. She's very practical. She gets laid off from her job. She goes down to, um, the equivalent of the unemployment office in England. And she starts looking for other work and realizes that the kind of work that she was doing isn't what she wants to do. So she, take some training and take some classes and really tries to look for something else because she really wants to have a job. Um, meanwhile, her boyfriend, Rob, um, is convinced that the job that he was doing, which is, um, assembling pieces of pottery is the only job that he can do. And he actually says, that's what I am. And he just sinks further and further into depression. Um, and, runs out of money and kind of stops shaving and just kind of gives up on things while she's really trying to make it. And of course they have this wedding coming up and, um, that doesn't happen because of various reasons, mostly because he forgets to book the church. As she says, it's the one thing you had to do and you forgot about it. And somebody else books the church on that day and he tries to fix it by telling an outrageous lie to the people who have booked it so that they can get the date. But by that time, Lou decides that she doesn't want to marry him after all. And at the same time that they're deciding to get married, they're also deciding that they want to start a family. Um, and they sort of continue this idea, even after they both lose their jobs, which struck me as a little crazy, um, because starting a family isn't really the kind of thing you want to do when you don't have a job. So, um, they eventually stop trying to have a family and she moves out and Rob gets further and further depressed. And then at the end of the story, so all of that seemed very realistic. And I thought the portrayal of their arguments and, um, the, the way that their relationship changes was very realistic. It was exactly the way real people act. And we see some of Rob's friends. We don't see too many of Lou's friends. Um, and Rob's friends alternately try to help him or not, um, and you can see him sort of measuring himself up against the successful ones and feeling like he can only hang around with the friends who aren't successful or have lost their jobs like he has. Um, but he, Rob finally does get a job. And I felt like the whole him getting a job thing was very much um, deus ex machina. Like out of the blue, the job center, the unemployment office calls him and says, well, I have a job for you. It's exactly the job you want. And it's a little bit out of town, but it's exactly what he wants to do. And he gets that job. Um, and in his mind, of course, once he gets a job, everything is fixed again. And Lou doesn't see it quite that way. Um, and like I said, they, they sort of end up together at the end, but I can't quite tell how much they end up together at the end. And 
I'm, I'm just not sure how to read it. You know, I, I, I actually Googled around a little bit online to see what other people said about it. And, you know, they pointed out that the ending of the book is like real life. You know, nothing gets wrapped up really neatly. The thing that, that I had a hard time getting over is Lou wanting to be with him at all because of how horrible he was when he was unemployed. I mean, you, you really, the, the artist, Andy Watson, really portrays Rob at his depths, that he just has given up. He doesn't care. And he's sort of mean to her besides. Plus, he has that, that white guy arrogance. He spends the first third of the book when she's saying to him, go look for another job, go do something. And he keeps saying, I'm going to get our jobs back. I'll make some phone calls. I'll get our jobs back. He's so confident that he can fix anything because he's the guy. He'll just call somebody up, he'll call up the union guy, and bingo, they'll have their jobs back. And when he finds out that that doesn't work, it just crushes him, and he can't do anything else. And he sort of refuses to acknowledge what's happening, and relies on her more and more for money, because he obviously doesn't have any money, and he won't accept any kind of responsibility for their wedding. Um, The one thing that he gets she asks him to do he totally fucks up and he can't really fix it and you know she says that she loved him throughout all of that and it didn't matter how much money he made of course he thinks that she doesn't love him anymore just because he didn't have a job but it's really because he showed himself to be unreliable and uncaring when things were really bad and you got to wonder about someone who who has that happen. You know, there's no medication. He doesn't get put on Prozac or anything. But what's he going to be like the next time something really bad happens? And I think that's the big question for somebody like Lou, who wants to have a relationship and wants to have a family. Is Rob somebody she, she could actually rely on? And, you know... I don't think so. My opinion is, no, he's not the kind of guy that you could rely on. As much as he might love her and have good intentions and want to do the best thing, he's just shown that in a bad situation, he's not the guy you want to rely on for that. So I I guess I wanted to know a little bit more about how things ended up and not just that they're sort of together. Um, so that was my take on it. And so I, I think this is good. I think it's a really good read. I mean, I, I read it straight through cause I really wanted to see what happened at the end. I liked the characterization and I, I liked the art very much. I just felt unsatisfied by the ending to the book. So if you've read this, let me know if you also felt unsatisfied. Um, I'd never heard of Andy Watson before and apparently he's done a bunch of stuff. So I had to go look him up. Um, and he's done some mainstream things as well. He scripted the Buffy the Vampire Slayer comics for two years. Um, and he's, um, this particular book was nominated for an Eisner Award. Um, and he has apparently been working for Slave Labor, Slave Labor Graphics, among other people. So that was this book, Breakfast Before Noon. Let's see. Oh, let me talk about something else that I wasn't real happy with. This was another, um, Bendis book, right? I told everybody before how much I liked Fortune and Glory, which was his autobiographical take on getting into the big time and um, getting movies options optioned. None of those movies have ever come around, as far as I can tell. Um, so this book is called Total Sellout, and it's kind of a compilation 
of a whole bunch of stuff that he didn't get published in other places. Some of these were comics that were done for um, a Cleveland newspaper, and other things were just one-shots and covers and uh, stories that just didn't have any place else to go. And uh, he drew everything in here, so some of it is in that um, torso style, kind of the true crime uh, heavily, heavy black and white noir feel, and some of it is m- much more his cartoony style, and some of it is more in a, a fumetti style, where they're just photographs that he's taken and drawn over. So I, I like the art very much, but I gotta say, I wasn't really thrilled by the stories. I felt in a lot of cases like they didn't have a meaning for me, they didn't go anywhere. Some of them are funny, you know, he tells stories about working in McDonald's, he tells funny stories about um, things that happened at Comic Con. Um, he tells some stories about his wife that are fairly amusing. But then there's like these longer stories that I, I kind of don't get why they're in here. And I don't understand the point. Okay, so here's an example. This is one of, he, he, there's a series of interviews in here where he talked with um, friends or, or people that he had met and asked them to tell him stories. And then he pretty much wrote the stories out verbatim and illustrated them. There's a couple with this woman named Jen. And in one of them, um, it's called Brothers and Sisters. She talks about how much she liked to scare her brothers. And she describes how she really fucking scared them. And it sounds awful, just the kind of torture that, you know, your brothers and sisters might have done. And she says, oh, I did all the bad things to my brothers. Every bad thing I thought of I did to my brothers, like without conscience, without remorse, anything. I like the idea of jumping out and scaring the piss out of someone. Scare them. So then she talks more, and then she says, uh, you know, when she did these things, it was so satisfying. And it goes on for, like, pages and pages, her talking about how much she loved to scare her brothers and the awful things that she would do to scare them. And at the end, I was like, it was icky. It just felt really icky. Like, ew, I don't want to know that stuff. And why are you giving her four pages to tell these horrible stories about torturing her brothers? It's like, am I supposed to identify with that? Am I supposed to be appalled by it? Okay, I'm appalled, but you didn't need to do it in four pages. One would have sufficed. Thank you very much. And then there's another story in here by a guy named, it's a guy named Mike. The first story he had told was about um, watching somebody get beat up at a strip club. And the second one, he talks about was meeting some porn star at a club and I don't get it. Like again, four pages, one, two, three. Oh, sorry. It's only three pages about meeting a porn star at a club and there's no point to it. Like I didn't get anything other than that. He met a porn star at a club. Oh, and she's got real breasts and I'm like reading and I'm waiting and I'm waiting for some insight to come because usually when somebody tells a story, there's a point to the story, but I didn't kind of see the point. So, you know, I I really, really love Torso, and I have some trades of the other stuff, Goldfish and Jinx, that I haven't read yet. I know I wasn't really happy with the Ultimate Spider-Man, so I gave that up. And I just feel like there could be so much more, and this really let me down because I was expecting more from it. But, you know, maybe it's just supposed to be half-finished ideas that never really made it anywhere. So, just not, not really thrilled. Um... Yeah. <laughs> what can I say? I, I wanted it to be better. That's it. I wanted it to be better than it was. And it just didn't do it for me. Let me take just a little break and come back with some things that I actually did like more than total sellout.
getting stuff already. Comic Relief. Let me talk about Comic Relief for just a moment. The only comic book store that really matters on 2026 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley, California. Full of just all sorts of comic-y goodness. So if you're within a 50-mile radius of Berkeley, California, go to Comic Relief and buy lots of stuff from Rory and tell them I sent you. Okay. I had to get that in because I've been forgetting to do that. Let me also mention that um, the webcomic Alien Loves Predator, which is at alienlovespredator.com, continues to be really hilarious. And you should subscribe to it and make sure you read it. It's up twice a week now. um, And it's gone from a longer format to a three-panel format. But it's still just as funny. How I Love Alien Loves Predator. I even bought a t-shirt. So those two things are great. Now, here's a thing that I thought I was going to hate, and I didn't. It's uh, Ultimate Avengers, and this is the Volume 2 trade paperback called Homeland Security. So a couple of shows ago, um, when I was talking with David Arroyo about this, um, we talked about the first Ultimate Avengers cartoon movie, which was not bad. I kind of liked it. And then he told me about the second one, which he thought sucked. And uh, I haven't seen it, so I don't know if it sucked, but we talked about the plot. And at that point, I hadn't read this book, and now I read this book. So I thought it would suck because the movie sucked, but it didn't suck. It was actually pretty good. So if you're listening to this right now, you probably know a hell of a lot more about Ultimate Avengers than I do. Um, I just read this, and I probably won't read any more, but I did enjoy this. And uh, Mark Miller is one of those guys, I think, who should really stick to writing, you know, alien invasions and action sequences and people getting blown up and really, really should stay away from writing about interpersonal relationships because I think he does a really bad job of it. But fortunately, in a book like this, there's very, very little of the interpersonal relationship. So I was happy because it was all about, you know, people beating the shit out of each other and aliens blowing shit up and all that. So that that, that was good. The interpersonal relationship stuff was really stupid. Um, so here's a couple things that I will mention that bugged me and then the things that I like. A couple things that bugged me. You know, this, this series... Um, is sort of, it's Ultimate 7 to 13, right? And um, it contains the plot line of um, Hank Pym and his wife breaking up because he beats her up. And uh, this is very controversial and all that. We don't actually see it here in these things, but we, we hear about it. And uh, here here's a section that I just thought was so bad and stereotypical. Um, they're talking, so Tony and Captain America... Um, and uh, who is this that they're talking with? <laughs> oh, it's uh, Bruce's girlfriend. So they're in this diner and they're talking and she's saying, oh, he's hit her before, blah, blah, blah. The year after I switched courses, I heard he got angry about her dancing with a first year student at the Christmas party and punched her so hard the roof of her mouth split in two. Okay. Um, that hardly ever happens. The roof of your mouth is actually part of your skull. And it's one of the hardest parts that you can have. So if the roof of her mouth, the actual palate, not the skin, but the bone split in two, she would have been in the hospital for quite a while and had to have like serious reconstructive surgery. So that's crap. Um, And then Tony says, why would she put up with that? Not why is Hank such an asshole? Why does Hank have to beat up women? Not why didn't Hank get arrested? Not why didn't one of their friends call the police and have him hauled off to jail for assault and battery? But why did she put up with that? And, you know, that's kind of typical. Why did she put up with it? Why didn't she do something about it? (laughs) Why wasn't he in jail? (laughs) 
Why didn't somebody else call the police? Let's put the blame back on him, okay? Not on her for not doing anything. So that part was stupid. And then there's, you know, the scene that makes everybody feel good where Captain America goes and kicks um, Hank's ass all over the place, even when he's giant-sized. And, you know, there is that conveniently located, suspended um, bundle of um, rebar or whatever it is that he drops on his head. It's a good thing that was there, because otherwise I don't think he would have beaten him up. However, I have to say that... um, There might be a good reason why Hank Pym is an asshole and has to beat up women, and it's illustrated quite nicely throughout this action sequence. Oh, the pencils in here were done by, let me tell you, Brian Hitch. And in general, I really like his art style, especially in the action sequences, which are really well drawn. There's lots of stuff flying through the air, very exciting, beautiful use of color. Um, Let's see, the colors were done by Paul Mounts, and they're great. Um... But when Captain America is beating up Hank, and Hank is naked, he has no dick and no balls. And I guess if you go through life with no dick and no balls, that might make you a little bit pissed off. Honestly, if you look, I looked, (laughs) you know me, I looked really closely at every frame that is drawn with him being shown below the waist, being naked. He has no dick and no balls. And that's just the way it is for Hank, so there you go. Um, (laughs) Let's see. So the, the big plot is, you know, the aliens who were the Nazis in World War II come back and they're going to take over the Earth and they fool the Avengers and there's just, it doesn't matter. There's just this huge battle that takes place and it's very exciting. Um, of course, Miller has to get in his, his stupid um, anti-French jab where um, Cap is fighting the, the head Chitari guy and... Um, He's, he kind of cut. He almost cuts him in half with his shield, which is actually pretty cool and gross. And the the alien says, "You know, you should surrender." And then he points to his head and he says, "You think this letter on my head stands for France? Surrender, France. Get it? Uh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for being an imperialist asshole." But anyway. I guess we should expect that. Um, So then, at the end, the way they defeat the aliens is that they bring in um, the Hulk as the secret weapon, and he basically eats the head alien, which is kind of disgusting. But, you know, apparently he rips his head off, which we see only in a um, a profile or a shadow. But then he eats him, and we sort of see part of that. Um, And then it's over, and everything's better. (laughs) That's pretty much how it ends. And uh, Janet, the the wasp, sort of gets together with Cap at the end, but not really. Um, So, I loved the action. I thought the action was incredibly good, and it was really like you want a battle to be. Like I said, big explosions, big fighting, big people punching each other out all over the place. Oh, let me tell you, um, okay, the thing that didn't bug me so much is like, why is this in here? Is um, Pietro and the Scarlet Witch obviously having an incestuous relationship? You know, that's not even hinted at. It's not subtext. It's text. There they are. They're basically smooching each other right there on the page. Um, But Thor, and I don't care what happened to Thor in later issues of Ultimate Avengers because it doesn't matter to me, but I love Thor in this Thor totally rocks. He is my total favorite character because everybody thinks he's crazy. And I think we as the reader are supposed to know, yeah, he really is Thor. He's the thunder god and he does fight Loki when he's not helping stop alien invasions. And he's got this magic hammer. He can do all sorts of cool things. And he has a sense of humor and he helps Greenpeace. 
And he's just all around awesome. So total Thor, my favorite character. And he has a sense of humor. Did I say that? That was kind of my problem with old Thor, Jack Kirby Thor, even though I love the way he was drawn, is that he really didn't have a sense of humor. But in this one, he is really funny. And he just kind of pops in when he's needed, and he pretty much saves the day here by teleporting people. And uh, he's just awesome. I love Thor. Thor is my favorite person. Yay! So, Ultimates 2. Really not bad. Oh, and one more thing that I absolutely loved is the cover. Very iconic. There's Cap. He's got his shield held at the ready, and it's a shot from below, and we see his enormous Captain America package right there on the cover. And that's the way comics should be, you know? You should be showing them with their their cocks and their balls, like, right there where everybody has to look at them. And it could have been bigger, and I would have been happy. If it had made more fanboys uncomfortable, that would have been great, too. So, yeah, there we go. Um, another thing that I read that I pretty much enjoyed was um, a Marvel title, Exiles. And this is called Exiles World Tour. And the reason I have this is that the um, pencils were by my man, Paul Pelletier. And I like his pencils. I love the way he draws. I knew nothing about Exiles before I started reading this, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, this collects, let's see, Exiles 69 to 74, and they were written by Tony Bedard. So I had no knowledge of what this was at all. I did a little bit of Wikipedia reading on it, but I really didn't need it because I thought that the script was fairly self-explanatory, which is a good thing in my opinion. Um, It kind of helps to know the cast of characters, but I felt like the writer did a really good job of bringing it all out there so you could understand what was going on. Um, And there's a lot of weird alien stuff, and in this particular series, they're facing um, the son of... uh, uh, Maura McTaggart, who um, has a name, and I can't remember what it is, but he's like this unstoppable um, evil guy that, uh, it's it's her son, right? So um, he is in this world, this, this world apparently that the Scarlet Witch uh, created, and he, he just is unstoppable because he sucks the life energy out of everyone, and he can warp space and time. So the exiles have to try to find him, and... Uh, decommission him or kill him or something so it's what i like about it is the pacing which is incredibly fast things just move right along which i think is great and sometimes stuff isn't explained and that's okay too i think in a story like this things have to move along really really quickly with all kinds of weird shit being thrown around at you at about 100 miles an hour um and the art kind of matches that it's not sloppy art by any means but it's it goes out of frame constantly. Nothing is um, kind of contained within the frame, and um, he does a really nice job of making these interesting. Um, it, it's not you know frames like six to a page or, or eight to a page. It's things at odd angles and stuff overlaid, and lots of full page panels or um, weird things that that burst out of the frame. And I love it. I think it's really good, really action-packed, and uh, it, it's really suited to the story that's happening here, and great action sequences as well. And plus, people die. And I don't know if this is kind of standard for Exiles, and I don't know whether um, people who die in the stories are actually dead, or they come back in some other reality and they're able to you know, do things. But there are several characters in here who get outright killed, and that's pretty shocking, and I like it. Um, you know, and the cool thing is that their deaths aren't 
the point of the book. So each individual comic book, that is, they just die because that's what happens when you're fighting super-powered villains. Um, you know, some people are going to die, and you just got to suck it up and move on if you're part of the team, and that's what happens here. So the, the deaths that happen are kind of sudden and violent, just the way they would be, and people just move on, even though they're upset by it. They don't let it ruin it, and um, I thought that was a really good thing. Now, even though this was drawn by my man, Paul Pelletier, there are hardly any butt shots in here. There is one, a really great one, of um, the mutant angel, Salvatore, right at the very beginning, and it's a billboard that she's posed for in this alternate universe for a pair of jeans. The jeans are called Dangerous Curves. And um, I really like the way he draws her. I mean, she's been in other X-Men books, and he just draws her the way you'd think she would be, you know, really curvy, with a great ass and big hips and stuff. And, um, you know, her face isn't really skinny either, which I like too. So it's uh, it's a really nice portrayal of her, and I, I think that's really nice. Um, there are some gratuitous tits in here, but not as much as there could have been, <laughs> which I think is a good thing. And there's sort of a, a happy ending um, for... Her and for uh, Beak Barnell at some point. Although, again, it's not clear if that's a reality that gets to stay or whether it's just going to be shifted at some point. So um, I really kind of liked Exiles. Now, you know, typical, I went to Wikipedia. I looked up all the stuff that had happened before and the stuff that happened after. And once again, you know, TFC, too fucking complicated. It would just take me too long to figure out what's going on. But I, I really did like looking at this and... I like Pelletier's art quite a lot. So, yay, Exiles. Yay, World Tour. It's a good book. mentioning two other things. One is a book that I just got done reading, a science fiction book called The Sparrow, which I enjoyed quite a lot. Um, Again, I was left somewhat unsatisfied at the end of it because I didn't feel that the author was clear enough about her position. Um, It's a book about Jesuits in space, and if that sounds crazy, (laughs) it's a great premise for a book. It really is. And it's a really wonderful science fiction story about uh, first contact. And I appreciated the fact that it did not spend too much time on the hard science aspects of it. You know, um, travel that's close to the speed of light, just it happens. We did it. We figured it out. And there isn't a lot of time spent explaining it. Um, There are some passages of it that I wanted to read because they have some of the best writing that I've read in a long time. And what a joy it is to find something that's really well written. There are too few books that are written by people who really know how to write, I guess is the best way to put it. And the woman who wrote this um, is a wonderful writer and 
part of the reason I like this book so much is because uh, the, one of the main characters is a linguist. So there was a, a big um, personal thing in there for me. The author is Mary Doria Russell. And I would read those passages to you right now, but I loaned the book to somebody, so I can't. Um, there's also a sequel that's just out called Children of God, which <clears throat> I haven't read yet. I have to borrow it from Logan, the Boy Wonder. Uh, but I'm going to read that, and I'm going to try to write a longer review of it. But if you are interested in um, sort of contemporary science fiction that's not really hard science, but still deals with aliens and moral issues, I definitely would recommend The Sparrow. Um, it's a little tough going in the first couple of chapters because there is a kind of large cast of characters that you have to get to know. But once the plot gets underway, the plot really rolls along, and uh, I, I was very pleased with it. So I'm glad that I finally got around to reading it. And one final thing, a, a number of people asked me if I've read Lost Girls, which is the Alan Moore thing that's out right now. And I haven't, and I probably won't because I can't afford it. In conjunction with this, there is a live journal group community called Scans Daily, Scans underscore Daily, where people post um, whole issues of comic books sometimes or chapters from books that they've had that they've scanned in, obviously, and put up there. So <clears throat> you can either get a sampling or... Sometimes they just put up, you know, Silver Age wackiness or things that um, might entice you to buy. And I've seen quite a lot up there that I liked. And someone had posted, I think, the entire Dorothy chapter from Lost Girls. So I've seen that part of it. And a couple things. One is that um, I know there's been lots of controversy because the girls in it are underage, or they are at the time of the stories. And um, this did not bother me because it was very clear to me as I was reading it that these were not really stories about 16-year-old girls. They're an older man's fantasy about what 16-year-old girls should be like. So the 16-year-old girl, in this case Dorothy, does not act, think, or talk like an actual 16-year-old girl. It's an adult woman in the body, and the body doesn't look like a 16-year-old girl either. Um, it looks like a much older girl. So I wasn't squicked by that at all because she really didn't seem to be 16. Um, and, you know, I can appreciate the, the take and what he's trying to do. Um, by taking those characters and putting them into uh, um, this sexual content. But it, it seemed very pedestrian to me. There's nothing transgressive about it. You know, I, I like the, the idea that, you know, the three farmhands are, like in the movie, like in the the, the MGM movie, are the, the real-world alternates of the characters that she meets in Oz. And that in this story she has sex with them. But it's it's very male fantasy, you know, that, that there's something wrong with each of these three guys. And by having sex with a very young woman, <clears throat> they're cured. Or they're made into better people because they've had sex with her. And, you know, whatever. That's a male fantasy. It has nothing to do with actual women. <laughs> because sex doesn't really work that way for 16-year-old girls. Um, and it's clearly something that Alan Moore has thought about or would like to believe. And I'm sure it's very appealing to, to men. So whatever, it's not any kind of porn that I think would turn on any woman that I know. Maybe, I mean, there probably are, but it certainly doesn't do it for me. So I didn't find it shocking and I didn't find it, um, you know, outrageous in any way. As I said, pedestrian is the word that, that it struck, that, that struck me as being the right way to describe it. It's a very ordinary male fantasy put in the realm of the fantastic. Um, and maybe I've just read too much porn. I don't know. <laughs> Is that even possible? 
So um, I think I'm just going to wrap it up on that note about reading too much porn <laughs> and say, um, oh, yeah, there have been some good things on TV. Um, I'm continuing to love Foster's, and there was a Foster's movie on for Thanksgiving called Good, good Wilt Hunting, which was really funny, and I recommend seeing that if you haven't. There's another show I've been watching called Ben 10, which started out being kind of stupid. Um, the plots were very Johnny Quest-like, but the last couple have been really interesting. So in the series of Ben 10, it's about a kid named Ben, um, and he gets this magic watch that allows him to turn into different um, monsters, good monsters, for very short periods of time. And he is with his um, cousin Gwen and his grandfather, and they sort of cruise... It's, they cruise around the country in a van fighting crime. Sounds just like Scooby-Doo. But they do. Um, and there's a lot of humor in it, too. And the art is sort of a cross between manga-looking art and kind of Kirby-looking art. And that's what I'm really digging lately, is that the, the good guys and the bad guys are starting to be really heavily Kirby-influenced. So they look like Kirby heroes and monsters. And I like that quite a lot. And as I said, the last couple of episodes that I watched... Um, were very different from the standard Johnny Quest sort of friends in danger things, which they had been doing for a long time, and were much more um, out there and, and large in scope for a half an hour animated show on Cartoon Network. So I'm hoping it keeps up because it's really cool. Um, so yes, watch Ben 10 once in a while because y- you might like it. Um, and uh, even though there's no more new Teen Titans, they've been showing a lot of old Teen Titans. And Teen Titans continues to be good as well. I haven't been keeping up with Legion just because I haven't had time, so I've been downloading it off the internet. Oh, don't tell anybody. And um, it, it's pretty good. It didn't. It hasn't grabbed me yet the way Teen Titans does. And maybe it, it just needs more episodes to find its stride. But I am really happy that you know Will Wheaton is doing the voice of Cosmic Boy. You can't go wrong there. So uh, I'm going to dredge up some musical thing to play to accompany, as always, the wonderful music by Ginger Mayerson that is in every episode because you just can't beat this kind of intense, modern, heartfelt stuff that she composes. And I just love these pieces. So I will always and forever be playing that. If you like her music, you should go to her website and download some of it and throw her some money for it as well. And next time around, I think we might be talking about V for Vendetta because I have it sitting right next to me and I'm going to start reading it. God damn it, I knew I was going to forget something. I meant to mention weeks ago that I did another great crossover with David Arroyo from the Comic Makers podcast. And he posted it. It was really fun. We got to talk about way loads of fun things. And I finally put up the link for it at my blog. Um, so you can find that. It's the one right after the one for this show. Or you can go to his blog, which is at comicmaker.blogspot.com. And it's the show for October 7th. So please go and listen to it. And if you haven't bought a copy of David's comic, which is called Heroes Reborn, you should go get it because it's really, really funny. And send him email saying where the hell is the next issue because he's been working on it for way, way too long and that issue needs to be out there. And the very, very last thing I want to say, because I know people are going to ask me about it, um, Occasional Superheroes blog, a.k.a. Video Girl, what do I think about it? I think it's true.
When from my mother's womb I came Disputandum was my name Weeping, hoping, threatening Beyond myself I had no king I drew in with each hour's breath Gray dust of the second death And when my childhood days were spent It was to feed us I grew Suppliant Little tremors woke and died Within the mountain of my pride 